Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith, and today I'm with Tim Cronin. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for having me. Today we'll be discussing the landmark case of Kuhn versus Walden to serve as a launching point for the much bigger topic of opioid litigation in the United States. Tim, a few years ago, you were a lead attorney in this case, along with John Simon and John's son, Johnny. This was one of the first cases in the United States to hold a physician accountable for overprescribing opioids. And not only did you get a good result for your client, as we'll be discussing, your work in this case changed the way opioids have been prescribed across the country. It's also forced physicians to join a serious conversation about opioid addiction. So uh, with that in mind, maybe we can start off with the, um, well, with a bit of who you are. Can you give me a thumbnail of your legal career and how you ended up at Simon Law Firm and what you're doing now? So I have been at the Simon Law Firm since I graduated from law school. And the story of how I got here is kind of funny. I went to St. Louis University Law School, like a lot of the other attorneys at the firm. I didn't really know about the firm. And I, I, I took trial advocacy at the beginning of my third year. And my teacher happened to be John Simon, who I didn't know prior to that. So I was very lucky to get John. Anybody who gets him to help teach him how to try cases is lucky. And over the course of that semester, developed a good relationship with him and started talking to him about, you know, whether the firm would be hiring and they weren't looking for anybody. But I guess I uh, made an impression on John and he ended up offering me a job to come work at the firm. Maybe you can tell our audience what kind of cases you handle generally nowadays. Sure. So like, like a lot of the attorneys at the firm, I'll handle almost any kind of catastrophic injury or death case. I do a lot of product liability and a lot of medical malpractice cases, but also trucking cases, premises liability cases. I, I, I handled the, a case a few years ago that was in the news where Reggie Bush sued the Rams for slipping and falling at a game at the Rams Dome because they had uncovered concrete. So it, it's a pretty wide array. Currently, more of my cases are medical malpractice cases, and specifically, a lot of them are uh, overprescription of opioid cases. We should also mention that you have a podcast. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the name of that podcast and what kinds of things you will be accomplishing there? So we thought it would be a good idea because I, I know you and John's podcast, Eric, focuses on specific litigation tips and trial tips. We thought it might be a good idea to have a podcast that kind of tells the story of some of our more significant cases. And so Johnny Simon and I, which is John's son, who's been at the firm for, I think, about about five years or so, and I work very closely with him. Uh, we have a podcast called Results Don't Lie, which focuses on some of our bigger cases that were tried. Uh, and our first one is about the, the Kuhn v. Walden and Slough case, which is about overprescription of opioids, which, which led to our firm starting to do a lot more of these opioid cases. And that, that case was tried back in 2016. Maybe we should turn our attention now to the background of those cases, the opioid epidemic. It's a nationwide problem. And this overlaps a lot in these cases. 
to the dismay of the defendants, and I and the reason I say to the dismay of the defendants, I, I understand one of their main complaints in these cases is that they don't want to be tried for the conduct of other doctors that hurt other people. They want to just be tried almost in a vacuum. They want the jury not to know anything about the nationwide problem, but it seems like there's a lot of notice issues that make all this relevant to the conduct of particular doctors. They all know what's going on all around the country, and uh, that information is widely shared among health professionals. But can you talk about that for a while? So, yeah, Eric, you, you keyed in on what was a major pretrial evidentiary issue in Coon and has been in subsequent litigation. Where, where we've had hearings about what evidence could come in and was really the main focus of the appeal that happened in Kuhn after our verdict, where they were arguing evidence of the opioid epidemic should not have come in at all during the trial and that I, I shouldn't have been allowed to say the words opioid epidemic. And they were saying, look, you're trying to put us on trial for the conduct of other physicians and harm to other physicians. And our response was, you cannot try a case in a vacuum. These are all things that this physician and this healthcare system knew about, that they had notice of, and the jury cannot judge the conduct of the doctor without giving thought to the environment in which the doctor or the healthcare system operated in. So uh, we won that issue pre-trial, and we won it at the appellate level too. And the appellate court essentially said, look, this goes to notice, you know, there's evidence that they knew about these increasing statistics that are terrible and what was happening around the country. Jury can judge their conduct based on what they knew what was going on. So almost everybody knows at least some about the opioid epidemic at this point. It's a cancer that's grown and metastasized in the United States over the last over 20 years. Hundreds of thousands of people have died in the U.S. from prescription opioid overdoses. That's putting heroin aside. And the prescription opioid problem is much bigger than the illicit heroin problem. The number of people who've died is just the tip of the iceberg. There are millions of more people that suffer from addiction and opioid use disorder, that it's tearing families apart on top of, you know, the number of people who've died. I mean, at the, at its peak, more people were dying from prescription opioid overdoses than the total number of American soldiers that died in Vietnam. That's, that's uh, heartbreaking. Yeah. When I first heard about the opioid epidemic, I had this image because I didn't know that maybe people were buying these things, uh, buying the drugs illegally on the streets. But after reading uh, about your case, I'm, I'm wondering, does that ever happen or is it entirely prescribed medication? It happens, but those two issues are kind of intermixed. In other words, it's not a simple answer. So I think as you got later into the epidemic, there started to become more of like illicit fentanyl coming in from China illegally and other parts of the world that never came from a prescription pad. But for the vast majority of the epidemic, all of the pills people are getting had to initially be prescribed by a physician that has a DEA license to prescribe, you know, schedule two narcotics, which all these prescription opioids are scheduled to narcotics means they have a high potential for abuse and, and addiction um, and are dangerous. And so, yeah, there, there is a lot of people buying opioids illegally or trading them on the street, but most of those ultimately come from a physician who wrote a prescription for somebody that is over-prescribing grossly to somebody that they have access that they can turn around and then sell them on the street. 
is that the pinch point of the argument that you would say the physician got you started and uh, at that point you're dependent on the drugs and, and addicted? The cases we're handling primarily, the only opioids our clients have done, they got from a prescription from their doctor and they went and filled it at a pharmacy. We have had some cases where they started off for years getting prescription opioids from the doctor and the amounts increased and increased. And at some point they started also supplementing with street heroin. But part and parcel of that is, you know, the physicians are supposed to be doing urine drug screens to see what's in your system in making a decision about whether to keep giving you opioids or to try to get you help and get you into some kind of facility. So most of our cases our clients have no reason to go anywhere else because all the opioids they could ever want or need or get their hands on, they're getting them all from their physician in such great amounts that they don't need to go anywhere else. Let's say you've got a person with chronic pain, goes to the doctor, let's say it's back pain or neck pain, did a lot of conservative stuff, acupuncture, whatever, nothing's working. They go to a doctor and the doctor's thinking surgery is not warranted. Maybe I'll give you these pain pills and it's some sort of opioid pill, how should this then proceed? First and foremost, I would say that shouldn't happen. Somebody with chronic pain, like chronic back pain or neck pain, should not be put on prescription opioids in general. I mean, there are purposes for prescription opioids, like post-surgically for acute pain that you, you know, give them for a few weeks in small doses and closely monitor it. If somebody has cancer, they can be useful or some things like sickle cell, but if somebody just has chronic pain that you don't think can get treated surgically, in other words, they're going to continue to have chronic pain, starting them on opioids, which is the most powerful narcotic, most powerful pain pill you can give them, is a decision to have them on it for the rest of their lives at never-ending increasing doses. So once you start, because of tolerance, you're going to have to keep increasing it. It is guaranteed you're going to become physically dependent and a very high chance you're going to become addicted. And you're essentially deciding that a person is going to be on heroin at increasing doses for the rest of their life because prescription opioids are the same as heroin. They hit these same transmitters in your brain. They affect a person physically and psychologically in essentially the same way. So you really shouldn't put a person with chronic pain, unless it's cancer pain or some other very serious disease, on prescription opioids, you should try the least dangerous pain pills first after you've tried everything else, physical therapy and all that stuff. Uh, if you do decide to give somebody prescription opioids for pain, there's guidelines now that make clear what, what already was the standard of care, that you really shouldn't escalate to over about 90 or 100 morphine equivalent milligrams or for more than three months. To clarify, you're saying 90 to 100 milligrams. That's a that's the maximum daily dose, right? Daily dose, yeah. And just for comparison, my understanding from the appeal in the uh, Kuhn case, I almost fell out of my chair reading this, 1,500 milligrams per day. Is that right? Yep, I, over I, 1,500 morphine equivalent dose. How How is that possible? I know we'll get we'll get into that, but isn't isn't someone supposed to be dead when they're taking that much? If you gave somebody that dose who hadn't built up an increasing tolerance, yeah, they would die very quickly. But he was escalated to that dose over the course of four and a half years, where it started at 10 to 20 milligrams. And then it, it got up to about 50 to 60 on average after about the end of the first year. 
and then it quadrupled the next year and then it quadrupled the next year again. And so it just kept increasing and he built up this tolerance that still at that dose, it was surprising that he didn't die. Why would a doctor not use the alternatives? Is the opioid just too easy and too tempting or is there something else going on? You know, I, I've been trying to get an answer to that in all of these cases, and it's it's difficult to get what I think would be an honest answer. My gut is that it's very easy just to keep giving somebody opioids week after week and month after month without thinking about it. And maybe a lot of them did it without really understanding the harm of these pills or looking into it. I don't really know the answer to that for each individual doctor who does it. And I mean, the vast majority of them do not do things like you have to ask them. Um, some of it, I think it's just not paying attention. Occasionally, there are physicians who have been in bed with pharmaceutical companies for years. And I mean, this goes back to how the epidemic started, that are, have just these incestuous relationships with the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture opioids, that their medical judgment has just been completely clouded, that they can't see straight about what these drugs really are and how dangerous they are. Yeah, I'd like to turn the spotlight just for a minute toward the manufacturers because I, I've read, I don't know, maybe half a year or a year ago, one or more of the big companies that manufacture the opioids was heavily fined. What were they doing that they shouldn't have done that the spotlight did go right to the manufacturer as opposed to the doctor or the patient? Well, I think in general, the news media and the public a little bit more willing to turn a critical eye to pharmaceutical companies than they are to physicians who by and large dedicate their lives to helping people. And I, I think the role of doctors just wasn't getting enough attention in the beginning. I think it has since, especially since the Kuhn, the Kuhn case, which went viral across the country and seminars going on about it and, and changing practices. But here's what happened. This epidemic was fueled by the greed of pharmaceutical companies and a, a group of physicians seeking to line their pockets at the expense of medical integrity, their patients, and the American public. And the pharmaceutical company you're referring to, Eric, is Purdue Pharma. And a lot of people have heard of them by now. So they in, were the original manufacturers and inventors of Oxycontin. And there's a lot of different types of opioids. There's uh, hydrocodone, oxycodone, those two are in the drugs people commonly hear about, Percocet and Vicodin. Those are immediate release opioids. So your body immediately gets the effect from them and then it wears off over time. And then these pharmaceutical companies, Purdue was the first one to do it in the 90s, invented extended release opioids. And Oxycontin was the first one. And it released the effects of the opioids slowly over time. So the patient wouldn't have to keep taking a pill every two hours. You would take an Oxycontin. And the point was it was supposed to release it throughout your bloodstream and to your brain over the course of 12 hours or eight hours. So you'd only take two or three of them a day, but they could still be very high, high dose pills. And pharmaceutical companies in the nineties and Purdue Pharma was one of the worst. And you know, in the mid 2000s, they, they were fined $600 million for false marketing. Um, the false marketing campaigns that they and a lot of the other pharmaceutical companies did where they started going around and heavily marketing opioids and specifically extended release opioids like Oxycontin as non-addictive 
and completely safe, which was just not true. And so they got fined heavily by the government in the mid 2000s, but it didn't stop them. And it wasn't enough. Purdue Pharma, I think, recently just got hit with another like multi-billion dollar fine. And I think the Sackler family, who privately owns Purdue Pharma, is having to pay some substantial amount of money and there's criminal repercussions. But what's interesting is one of the primary ways they these pharmaceutical companies were able to do it to get physicians to start prescribing their drugs more is they used physicians. They came up with this marketing scheme where they would get high-profile physicians that they would call thought leaders. And then they would pay them to write articles to prominent medical journals like the New England Journal of Medicine saying opioids are non-addictive, extended-release opioids are perfectly safe. And they started coming up with this idea that pain is the fifth vital sign and pain is being untreated and you're harming your patients by not giving them opioids to treat their pain. You're not doing enough for them. And then they started paying these doctors to write these these articles in prominent journals that other physicians would then read, and then paying physicians to go around giving talks, a lot of money to give talks and, and have these dinner meetings where they would take other physicians out to dinner and pay for it to convince them to start prescribing their opioid and give them samples and stuff like that. So there were physicians that were heavily involved in the marketing scheme and plan of these pharmaceutical companies that helped spread the overwhelmingly increasing use of these things. I mean, the number of prescriptions increased four or five fold from 99 to 2014. You know, four or five times more of them were being prescribed in that period of time. The number of deaths that were increasing exactly mirrored the increase in sales of prescription opioids and prescriptions being written by physicians. How long have we known that opioids are highly addictive, that they could get away with saying that? Forever. A lot of people don't know. Heroin used to be able to be legally prescribed in the 19th century. And then they put a stop to that. Uh, You couldn't prescribe heroin anymore because of how dangerous and addictive it was. And these are exactly the same. There's not a difference. And then they came up with you know, a couple decades later, later, morphine. Uh, and somehow morphine was allowed to be able to be prescribed by physicians, but oftentimes it was usually only used in like a surgical setting. And it was never used for to just give to patients outpatient for chronic pain. And then they started inventing these synthetic opioids. So some opioids are just a natural byproduct of the poppy, which is like heroin and morphine. And then there are ones that are synthetic opioids, which are created in a lab to operate the exact same way. And despite this campaign to flood medical journals with false information about the addictive nature of opioids, every physician should have known that they knew what these things were. The risks have never changed over time. So they all should have known they've always been Schedule II narcotics by the DEA, which is defined as high propensity for abuse and dangerous. So once you're addicted, you're rather desperate to get more and more of this stuff. And let's say your doctor puts the brakes on and says, I can't give you more. I assume there's a lot of folks that would probably just go out and try to find another doctor and not tell Dr. A about Dr. B. And so the pharmacy might be filling multiple prescriptions. Is there, is there something in place to prevent that? So that's an excellent question. First of all, the prescription opioid problem has bled into increasing and causing the heroin problem our country is seeing. A lot of physicians, once they recognize or started to recognize or get scared about 
you know, lawsuits once the epidemic started exploding, just pulled their patients off of opioids. And then we started to see an increasing heroin problem. A lot of the people that end up addicted to heroin got hooked on prescription opioids and then couldn't get them anymore and then just started getting heroin off the street for even cheaper. That's one problem that we have. So if you're going to take a patient off of them, you need to closely oversee them and taper them down and also get them help from an addiction treatment facility. That's the right way to do it. But one of the things you mentioned is, is people getting prescriptions from different sources or jumping from one doctor. It's called doctor shopping, which is a big problem. And every state in the country has a prescription pill monitoring program in place to prevent that kind of thing, except for one state. Do you want to take a guess what that state is, Eric? Oh, I'm afraid to guess. Is it Missouri? Yep. It's Missouri. So why? It's Missouri, and there's been tremendous pushback. <laughs> well, why? Only, Who's pushing lobbying back? Lobbying efforts. Yeah. Lobbying efforts by two elected officials in Missouri who've been willing to not implement one. Um, and major healthcare providers who have, who have lobbied directly. I mean, talk, I'm going to talk about hospitals because of concern about liability, hospitals and healthcare providers, and then insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies lobbying. And it didn't work in 49 out of 50 states, but in Missouri, we don't have one. It seems like this kind of system would protect healthcare providers, not, not hurt them. You would think. The only way it wouldn't is if there is a prescription pill monitoring program. And if the doctor were to look at it, they could see that their patient's getting opioids from multiple sources and, and thus stop. The only way it would create liability for them is if they ignored the prescription pill monitoring program, didn't comply with it, looked at it and saw the patient was getting prescriptions from multiple doctors and did it anyway, or just didn't check. It's bewildering to me. why <laughs> Everybody wouldn't be in support of having one. Let's look at the individual patient again for a minute. I read that Mr. Kuhn had neck and back issues. Can you take one opioid pill in some cases when you got excruciating pain and does it make the pain vanish? Does it, is it that powerful and that good on the short run? It has tremendous health with pain. It just needs to be closely monitored as to the proper amount and the proper time duration to give it. Because some people can get addicted to opioids in a week. Some people, it takes years. And so you just need to pay close attention to the patient. Well, and you, you trust and rely upon your doctor, right? If they say this is the best thing to help you, you trust and rely upon them and, and do what they say usually. Exactly. So you can, you can see this is, a, uh, this is a perfect storm, right? You've got horrible pain. You're trusting your doctor. He's got a magic fix. And if you take it and it takes away even 60% of that pain, this is a great day. And it's hard to understate the promise and the danger of being prescribed opioids by someone who's innocent of their dangers. It's a careful balance of the, of the risks and benefits of it. And that's what has to be done before you put a patient on it. You know, very, very high dose opioids, probably more effective than something else, but you have to weigh that against the risks of what can happen to the person, which includes respiratory depression and death. Do the patients have any idea that they are in danger once they are becoming dependent or addicted? Do they, do they know that they're in trouble or are they blissfully ignorant of the danger and they just feel good? Well, yeah, that's a question in every case. And in every case, the amount of fault that 
the patient bears is always an issue. In Kuhn, for example, Brian Kuhn, the jury assessed one third fault for his addiction and negative life consequences from these opioids to him. And he admitted on the stand that he thought he shared some fault. But, you know, addiction is a hell of a thing, Eric. It's your mind will block things. It will, you can rationalize anything if you, if your body and your brain just wants more of that drug, no matter how much it's harming you. So there might be some realization that you shouldn't be doing this, but your mind will play tricks on you and you will rationalize that you should still be getting it, even though you should be able to recognize that it's doing more harm than good. And then my clients who have then gotten clean afterwards, look back and go, Oh my God, why did I do that? Why did I let that happen? Why didn't I say I need to taper down? I need to stop even if the doctor's tell, telling me. And it's, you're, you're in the throes of addiction. You, you, you can convince yourself that something that's harming you, you absolutely need. How do you protect your client in trial from the moral judgment that's being rendered? And I'm assuming this rather, you know, you're, I assume your client is being called a bad person for being an addict and this in in many trials could hurt or kill the case uh, how do you protect your client from that it starts in voir dire i mean first you have to try to figure out which people are going to be able to get over that issue and and evaluate the case objectively and which people aren't and some people aren't and that's fine it's just that they shouldn't probably be serving on a jury. You know, some people have, they, people bring personal experiences into serving in, on, a, on a jury. And it starts in voir dire by trying to just openly talk about that issue, saying, look, my client's a drug addict. That is what this case is about. That my client was prescribed a narcotic uh, and we are alleging became addicted to it and it had serious negative consequences on their life. And we are here for the jury to figure out how much responsibility there is on the doctor for giving it to him and on the plaintiff for, you know, their own responsibility for their health care. And who here, no matter what the evidence is, just isn't going to get over that and just isn't going to ever award any money to someone who is admitting they're a drug addict. And so it starts in voir dire and then you have to build it in the case which each, with each of the witnesses and the defendant doctor and the experts about you know, the responsibility that a physician has to meet the standard of care. It's not the, it's not the patient's responsibility. And then frankly, the plaintiff, when they take the stand needs to just be completely on. I mean, they should always be completely honest. You're testifying under oath, but don't hold anything back because you're embarrassed your behavior. They need to be completely honest with the jury about, you know, what their own behavior was. I mean, in almost all of these cases, the plaintiffs are admitting they lied to their doctor from time to time. Lied to get more pills, said they lost their pills uh, or somebody stole them or weren't telling them about the negative consequences in their life because they didn't want to risk the doctor not giving them any more pills. So there certainly is, in a lot of the cases, fault to be shared by the patient. And I think the patient just has to be honest with the jury about that. And then the jury you know, makes a decision about how to assess where the blame lies. John and I have talked about Vardir, I think, on five separate episodes. And it's very clear that in modern times, as opposed to 30, 40 years ago, Vardir, in, in John's opinion, should be cathartic. It should be, you know, everyone talks what's on their mind and get it out. Yeah. Can you talk about that process? So John actually did the Vardir in this case. 
John and I tried this case. He did voir dire. I did open and close. We split the witnesses and we had focus grouped this Coon case a couple times, which for those listening who don't know, it ended up being a $17.6 million plaintiff's verdict, 15 million of which was punitive damages. The remainder of which was to Brian Coon and then also a consortium claim for his wife who went through everything he did, but with sober eyes. We knew we wanted to get to the opioid epidemic and all that stuff. And the jury panel brought it up before we did. The, the, the words opioid epidemic were brought up first by people on the jury panel before we said, and we needed to get people's thoughts about it. And people who, who may think, look, this is a huge societal problem. I don't think there should be individual lawsuits about it. I think we need to be dealing with, with it on a bigger level or people who had personal experience with it, with members of their family, some of whom might be more sympathetic to the case, some of whom might be less sympathetic, who've had family members who have developed drug problems or opioid problems. And they just, because of dealing with that family member, didn't want to hear somebody else bring a lawsuit about it. And they were going to blame that person more. So the key question really got down to who here thinks an individual person is more responsible for their own health care as opposed to a doctor. And that was the dividing line. And John did an excellent job of navigating through that to find out who could sit objectively in the case and be a fair juror and who was bringing in thoughts and opinions that might make them more suited for a different case. I read in the opinion that it sounds like the defendants were trying to hold the plaintiff team responsible for what jurors said when they were simply yeah. responding to questions as they should have. Specifically, one of their appellate issues, which was swatted away pretty quickly by the appellate court, because what they were trying to say that John said didn't happen. It didn't happen. They were upset in part because one of the jurors said, okay, you, you're asking if anybody has an issue with punitive damages or knows what punitive damages are. Where does that money go? And as you probably know, Eric, that is not for the jury's consideration. Right. Compensatory damages are to compensate the plaintiff, and they know that it goes to the plaintiff. Punitive damages, the purpose is not to compensate the plaintiff. The jury isn't supposed to consider whether the plaintiff gets it or somebody else gets it. And so that question was asked, and John just answered it and said, all I can tell you is that the purpose of punitive damages, as you will be instructed by the court, is to punish for the conduct in the case and to deter such conduct from this defendant and others in the future, the purpose is not to compensate the plaintiff, which is a completely accurate answer. And the only way you can answer, it, frankly, unless the court says just don't answer it. But once the question has been raised by the panel, I, I don't know how you can just not try to respond in some way. So what John said was completely accurate. And they tried to spin it that he told them the plaintiff doesn't get any of the money, which is not what he said. One other uh, issue that came up that was interesting and might apply to a lot of your cases is the relationship between the doctor and the hospital. I see in the appellate opinion that the defendants spun their argument to a theory that wasn't pled, according to the court, that this was somehow a negligent supervision of the doctor by the hospital. Could you comment more about that? Whether they monitored the doctor actually was pled in the case. And they were trying to say, we hadn't really pursued that theory. And then we sprung it on him at trial. That's what they were trying to say. So to answer that question in part, a lot of physicians are employed by a bigger institutional healthcare provider. For example, the doctor in the Kuhn case was employed by St. Louis University. 
And then St. Louis University also has a hospital that is owned by a different entity. But the physicians at St. Louis University Hospital and in the clinics that are around there are employees of St. Louis University. A lot of people don't know that. So if you are near or at like a major hospital system, there's a good chance that the physicians are employed by either a university that's affiliated with that hospital or the hospital system. And then within our case, under the law, there's something called vicarious liability. So an employer is legally responsible for the conduct of their employee. And that was the case in Kuhn and they admitted employment. So St. Louis University was a defendant. But we also had a claim that St. Louis University directly should have been doing more to monitor its physicians and the opioids they were prescribing and to monitor the opioids a patient is getting. They should have had some kind of, um, you know, we're not talking about 1975 when there's not computers. It's very easy to monitor. And they had done nothing. And the appellate court agreed with us that our, our expert had laid the foundation for what the standard of care should be for these bigger institutional healthcare providers. And then we put on the evidence that they didn't meet it. What has happened on a nationwide basis with regard to litigation on these issues since your verdict was upheld on appeal in 2017? Are there a lot more cases being brought? Yes. Um, So we filtered through hundreds, if not thousands of calls, and we have a good number of cases we started handling a lot more of them. And I mean, when we first got this case, we hadn't heard of a case like this. Suing a doctor for giving pain pills for pain. We'd heard of some cases against pharmaceutical companies, but once that verdict hit, it got national coverage. It started being taught in seminars. It led to a lot more lawyers advertising for and handling cases just like this. So we're not the only ones. There's, There's attorneys throughout the country that are handling them. But I think far more importantly is it has actually led to a positive change where this is happening less often. That verdict got taught to risk managers at major hospital systems all over the country immediately. It started getting taught at continuing education courses to physicians. Most physicians stopped doing it, started prescribing more carefully, much more carefully. And institutional healthcare providers, for example, SLU, started putting in policies, procedures, and monitoring programs to monitor physicians about the amounts of opioids they were prescribing and to have a system in place to follow up about it if if amounts got too high. So policies have started to be put in place in most places to curb this kind of thing from happening. So my hope is in the future, there there won't be any cases about this because it'll stop happening. It's phenomenal because the dangers were already well known. And uh, apparently it took the legal system to give the uh, healthcare industry a, a big shove to take notice of this well-known problem. It's ironic, you know, that something is so well-known and it took more than just knowing it well. That's corporate America. That is a common story that the tort system actually spurs more changes for making the public safer than anything else. What about the next one that comes in the door, uh, a client that comes in the door of the Simon Law Firm? Can you tell me what makes for a strong case that your firm would be more interested in rather than less? Every case has to be carefully evaluated. I mean, the very first thing we look at is the amounts and duration of the opioid prescribing. That's the very first thing we look at to compare it to what you know should be done, what the guidelines say. And then we have to take a look at what was the reason for prescribing it. Is it a pain, some kind of condition where 
it's more understandable that opioids would be prescribed at least at first, if not ongoing? Or is it a pain condition where it's you know preposterous, preposterous to ever even start somebody on opioids? We look at you know the rest of our, our clients' background in life, their willingness to get off of the drug and to try to clean themselves up and improve their life going forward. So it's a good number of factors we, we, take, a look, we take a look at. The very first thing we look at, though, is the amount and the duration of the drug that was prescribed, because that's what tells us, and the condition it was prescribed for, what tells us if we think there was negligence to begin with. We take these cases because we actually want to make a societal change for the better. I think the difference that Kuhn made in making systemic changes so that the number of people that get addicted to opioids or die from opioid overdoses decreases and we want it to continue to decrease to the point that this problem does not exist anymore. Uh, we actually want to make a difference. And so it doesn't happen to anybody else. It's gotten better, but there still are a lot of improvements that need to be made. I mean, we still have cases that are ongoing today for prescribing that happened in the last couple of years. It still needs to get better. The message hasn't gotten to everybody and it needs to get to everybody. Um, and so these cases help to amplify that message to everyone. And we hope eventually everybody gets that message and stops. It seemed, as I read the appellate opinion, that the court took a personal interest in this issue. It seemed really compelling to the court. There was something about it that was a little unusual compared to many appellate opinions I've read in the past. So I think you got through to them, too, about the, the importance of this issue. I think they saw it as an opportunity to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. I, I didn't think anybody on that appellate court wanted to be, you know, writing an opinion that could help cover up the problem. more. I think, you know, they didn't want to overturn a judgment that they thought was going to be better for society if it got upheld and start making changes. I, I got the same impression from the court, especially the way they wrote. it. We're talking about the appellate opinion of Kuhn versus Walden. In case anyone wants to read that, that's 539 Southwest 3rd, 752. It's a 2017 decision. It's, uh, it's well worth a read. I've been talking to Tim Cronin. Tim, this has been a really good conversation, necessary, and uh, thank you for your work in this area. I, I just can't help but think that you are helping a lot of people you've never met out there by taking your own personal interest in this case and uh, bringing this litigation. Well, thanks for having me on, Eric. I appreciate it. It was good. It was a good discussion. I'd like to mention that you have your own podcast called Results Don't Lie. In that podcast, you'll be discussing how the lawyers of the Simon Law Firm prepared for and argued Kuhn versus Walden, the landmark opioid overprescription case that we've been discussing. Listeners will be able to hear your insights into the innovative case strategies you employed. I'm sure it's been clear from our discussion today that Kuhn was a significant decision that has changed the conversation about how opioids are being prescribed. It's also a compelling story because of the bigger issues in this case that impact all of us. I would encourage our listeners to also subscribe to Results Don't Lie, your podcast, to hear the behind the scenes stories of this intriguing case and how it has helped to address the opioid crisis in the United States. Thank you very much, Eric. All right, this has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Feith. I'll be back again with John Simon soon for our next episode. See you then.
The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And if you want to look at the nation's first medical malpractice case against opioid overprescription, tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library in Results Don't Lie. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.